Why did a skeleton, bird, and a fish walk into a tavern? I don't know. Why? <laughs> to kill everyone. Oh. Guild Trip, a fancy podcast. New episodes every other Thursday. The hero's journey you didn't want to go on, but then you were guilted into anyway. This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 617 of the Twitter Nerd Comic Book Podcast. Nerds, my name is Matt Bond. And I'm the Internet's Joe Patrick. It's time for another Cosmic Longbox show where Matt and I rap about classic comics based on a theme. And this week, it is a big one. In honor of Godzilla vs. Kong, we're reviewing comics featuring giant monsters. After that, we're going to tell you all about our must-read picks for next week's comics. But first, that rumbling you hear, that's the Cosmic Longbox warming up and preparing to throw us into the ever-expanding timeline of comics past. Hope you're ready, Joe Patrick, because the Cosmic Longbox is on the rampage and we are mere ants in its path. Whoa, that's right. It's crazy. If you're like us, you probably clocked in some time watching the new Godzilla vs. Kong film. And if you're a big baby like Matt, you probably cried about it on the internet because you're a self-proclaimed Godzilla super fan and America is doing it wrong. It's true. Worst Mecha Godzilla ever. God, that design yeah, was look, terrible. Godzilla, Godzilla clearly won every fight that he had with Kong in that movie. That has nothing to do with anything. He should. That's not even my thing. Kong had an axe. Come on. What is this? A magic Rampage, axe? Rampage, the video that game? absorbed energy. Get out of here. Come on. In honor of these two titans meeting on the screen, the Cosmic Longbox has chosen some classic comics featuring giant monsters for us to discuss. Matt, crybabies go first in the ziggurat. Fear it. Seriously, though. That Mecha Godzilla, Terrible. Got it. it was a really badly designed. Stupid. <laughs> yeah. My first, my first comic from the Cosmic Longbox is Tales to Astonish, number 13, from Marvel Comics all the way back in the year of 1960, written by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby with inks by Dick Ayers. But it was a rough time to know who was doing what. They, we didn't like crediting people back then. Oh, and by That's the true. way, Marvel.com, you're no help at all. Thanks. <laughs> Yeah. If you're looking for the origin of Groot, everyone's favorite talking tree from Guardians of the Galaxy, I assure you, this is the right place. You just might not recognize this Groot. It all started one night when Leslie Evans and his bitchy, judgmental wife were driving home, and a meteor landed in a nearby forest. Later, trees and wooden fences start disappearing, while Leslie thinks, ah, it's probably just a prank by neighborhood kids. Who are stealing trees out of the ground, Leslie? <laughs> That's your theory? It would turn out to be Groot, the Invincible, who sucks up and absorbs wood so he can grow to massive size. Oh, and he glows. Oh, and he can control trees, too. Groot's plan is to steal the town by making trees surround it. Then they're going to grow a giant root net, and then the trees are going to take flight and lift the town into space, where Groot... The cosmic overlord of all timber will take the town back to his planet 
for testing and experiments. No rockets needed. No problem with trees freezing in space. It's all part of the plan. Don't worry. (laughs) Now, this isn't just the introduction of a poorly thought out giant wood monster. It's also a redemption story for Leslie Evans, who proves to his wife and the whole damn town that he's not just some nerd biologist. While the other dudes were flexing and shooting at Groot to no effect, Leslie bred termites in his lab that he would unleash on the cosmic timber overlord and save the day. Groot wasn't the only Marvel hero to make their first appearance in Tales to Astonish. Hank Pym made his first appearance in issue 27 as the man in the anthill. And like Groot, Hank would also be repurposed later as Ant-Man. And in issue 44, he'd get a partner named Janet Van Dyne, the Wasp. Tales to Astonish feels like it was a place for these creators to try out just about any idea. Groot is a perfect example. And then they would just see how they sell or if they got letters from kids. After that, repackage, rework, and reintroduce as needed. This Groot story is terrible, and it bears no resemblance to the Groot we know today, but it does come from a very wild and wooly creative time when Atlas Comics would shortly become Marvel, and then they'd really start leaning into superhero comics. I can't give this a leave it because of all the legends that are involved. The story is dumb. It's flat out dumb, but it is this, this redemption story for a nerd that saves the whole town. And I cannot believe how rude this dude's wife is to him the whole time. <laughs> like, the scene opens with him driving home, and he's like, sweetheart, what's that meteor over there? And she's like, never mind that. Why can't you be more like George Evans? He's such a macho man. <laughs> Goddamn, woman. <laughs> I'm giving it a skim it. All right, I'm ready to drop some knowledge on you if you're if you want it. Hit me. Uh, because while you were uh, giving your review, I looked it up. Um, I agree that Marvel.com is no help uh, for matters like this. I like to go to Fandom.com. Like if you Google any comic book character, especially from the big two, odds are uh, there will be a Fandom.com page devoted not only to the character but the comic series that it came in. Yeah, it's like the it's like the online Marvel handbook. It's great, not bad. So marvel.fandom.com shows this for the list of creative teams lead story i challenged groot the monster from planet x written by stan lee and larry lieber stan's brother uh pencils by jack kirby inks by dick ayers uh this sucked it was bad it's terrible. It was real real bad and like it's jack um, kirby art and it's bad Bad Jack Kirby art. Um, I didn't think that the Kirby art was as bad as you did. I do think that maybe Dick Ayers was not his best inker. Definitely not. But I mean, like, this wasn't even, like, detailed. It was real kind of unfinished in panels and stuff. Yeah. You can, well, This you know. is a comic book that they crapped out on a monthly basis. They were asking a lot of Jack Kirby back then. Yeah, so. definitely. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a skimmit for me just for, for a historical, like, uh, curiosity. Um, but yeah, it's certainly not good. Uh, it's funny. Uh, you mentioned, you know, this kind of idea of the series being sort of like a tryout, uh, historians and collectors will all, will often point out pre-hero, uh, sci-fi and monster comics from Marvel and DC, mostly Marvel that had like proto versions of characters that appeared for the first time. Like I know that there was a proto Hulk, there was a proto Dr. Strange. Yeah. Yeah. 
there uh, DC had a had one that was like a a, a proto uh, kind of swamp thing, and in some cases, like you would say, it's like no, it's literally Groot. It's Groot. They just changed Groot later when he came back. Uh, you know, same with Hank Pym. It's Hank Pym. They just turned him into a superhero. Right. So yeah, it's it's just kind of a fun little historical thing that back in those days, these creators were obviously like finding their way. You know. Yeah. I love it. Uh, not this comic, though. It no, sucks. it was terrible. <laughs> Yo soy Groot. My first review. <laughs> my first review goes to The Brave and the Bold, number 28 from DC Comics. It came out also in the year 1960 AD. While swimming in the Atlantic, Aquaman meets Peter the Pufferfish, <laughs> who witnessed a giant creature named Starro descend into the sea from space, and he cannot wait to tell Aquaman all about it. Not just that, though. When when Peter tells Aquaman, it's not just like, Aquaman, I saw an alien. You know, like, you got to come with me. He's like, Aquaman, why, I saw an alien earlier. I can puff up like a football and inflate no, and no, no, deflate. No, no, no. <laughs> no. He, he, says, uh, he says, I was floating upside down. On the surface of the water. Yeah. And then there's like an editor's note that says, Pufferfish can blah, 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 blah. And this comic is full of that shit. Yeah, it's like a wildlife treasury card or something. Yes, <laughs> right. Like with all these facts. I'm like <laughs> uh, you see, Starro has used his amazing powers to do apparently whatever he wants to transform three garden variety earth starfish who he imagines must be his distant cousins. Joe, they're the same shape. I mean, come on. They are star-shaped, <laughs> yes. I'm not uh, a starfishologist the, here, but it seems yeah, pretty obvious it's to true. me. <laughs> hey, look, I watch Resident Alien. It, it raises an alien. It's like, yeah, the squids on Earth, they're, they're ancient it's <laughs> resident yeah. aliens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he turns these starfish into clones of himself and uses them to launch an attack on the planet Earth. Aquaman, of course, has no choice but to call an emergency meeting of the Justice League using his patented A-belt communicator. <laughs> Which is a point where we get like, the Flash is trying to stop a tornado. And the Flash is like, a tornado spins around at high velocities, causing yeah, a right, yeah. Like, thanks, Flash fact. <laughs> like, exactly. settle down. Just stop the damn tornado, right? <laughs> Brave and the Bold 28 pulls triple duty as the first appearances of Starro, the JLA, and their plucky mascot. That's right, mascot, not sidekick. Nope. Snapper car. Yeah, he was like the guy that runs out before the team comes out and gets everybody fired up and claps yeah, for the he, crowd. Yeah, he hypes up the crowd. He does a yeah. flip, you know, and everyone's like, yeah! It's like, Ladies and gentlemen, snapper car! Justice League of America! Uh, I was surprised that writer Gardner Fox and artist Mike Sikowski introduced us to the group after they had already been formed. I was expecting this to be like a classic forming the team story, but it's not. No, the Justice League's already a thing. Which, by the way, does not happen before this. No. This is it. This, this is, is the, the first, first appearance, appearance of the Justice League. Yeah, and also, I was like, you know what? I've never read this. And then I said, thought to myself, yeah, me neither. after I read it, I was like, wait a minute. Maybe this wasn't. Maybe I'm wrong. And I looked it up. Nope. Like, nope. They were, there you go. Fully fledged team living in yeah. a cave, doing team stuff. They all know each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, but you know, like we uh, discussed with the Marvel books, Brave and the Bold was definitely a primer 
for things that would springboard into their own books. Right. Uh, the Teen Titans, Justice League, you know, all kinds of stuff came out of Brave and the Bold. The team splits up to tackle each of Starro's clones, explaining every step of their plan and their powers along the way. Because, hey, if you're a kid with 10 cents, you can only buy one thing and you're probably not buying all of the individual appearances of these characters. So nope. you might need to know what Green Lantern or Wonder Woman can do. Or they're trying to fill pages. <laughs> one of the two. Yeah, probably because is. Starro's plan was non-existent. <laughs> well, like, I mean, it was B-movie, like, hey, take over the world, I guess. <laughs> each clone had a different agenda. Right. One of them stole a nuke. One of them stole a building full of scientists. <laughs> and then there was a third one that did, I don't even remember. Which I love. It's just like, okay, so you go get the scientists. If that doesn't work, we've got Fishy over here who stole the A-bomb. And it- <laughs> Oh, the third one hypnotized. The third one hypnotized a small town full of nobodies. Yes. <laughs> like, and then we've got that weird little like human army if we need that. So <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, why don't we all uh, just go steal A-bombs and, and take that yeah, power? Like, that seems pretty uh, like, good. There's, <laughs> this, planet, this planet is lousy with them. Just send us all to get A-bombs. Yeah. Also, he could only find three starfish? I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, we do even get an interlude, like Matt said. Featuring a science lesson about real life starfish. It is not part of the story. Nope. It's its own single page illustrated. You know what? Everything you wanted to know about starfish, but we're afraid to ask. Was there, was there something going on where comics had to be educational or something uh, at this point? Yes. Because that, uh, it's sure this is beyond like, hey, it's for kids. And we're just like having fun learning. Like, no. This is like they yeah, yeah, no. forced some shit in there. <laughs> um, I, I, I think that uh, the comics code. Okay. When Seduction of the Innocent and, all, and the comics code all right. that came down. This would have been right. Um, about, this would have been right about then. So DC was playing it real It would have been later. Like it would, it would have been later on after like DC brought back superheroes. But but DC um, was playing it super safe here. Being like, yeah, Look. exactly. The, and, and like comics from this era, they are full of this stuff. There's the flash facts, like right. you said. Um, but this was bizarre. Uh, it was like Wonder Woman, look out! Six times six is thirty-six. You know, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, that Metal Man comic I reviewed when we did Robots uh, has a one-page uh, has a one-page uh, thing about like the characteristics of various metals. Like right. if you've got fillings were made of a different metal back in the sixties, and lead. It, it used to be this thing was, where they were lead. Yeah, back then, right? I was going to say mercury, but that can't no, be. No, I think it was lead poison. and mercury. I think you're right. <laughs> lead is also poison, Joe. <laughs> But uh, like there was something in there about how like, oh, if you have fillings, you might be able to pick up radio waves with your teeth, which was a thing back then. Fox's writing is about as silver agey as it gets. Ooh. And reading Snapper's groovy dialogue, man, was a special treat. <laughs> like Snapper would have been arrested if he was walking around talking. Like that would have been like, son, you need help. This boy is on drugs. We're going to take you to a hospital that right. will help you. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's not even that he's... Yeah, it wouldn't even be that he's on drugs. It's like, no, he's clearly no, they would think deranged. He's a, they would think he's like a Marty McFly time traveler or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, right. what year are you from? <laughs> Mike Sikowski, uh, the artist, had a tremendous career at DC, including an eight-year run on the JLA ongoing series that followed this issue. Uh, I loved his art in this. Uh, it has this really impressive level of quality for the time especially considering some of Marvel's offerings from the same era, which we have already discussed. 
Is Brave and the Bold number 28 dated? Yes. Is it very, 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 really silly? Yes. <laughs> I like your preference, really silly with very, very, really silly. <laughs> really, really, very silly. It's really, really, very silly. Was it a joy to read? To me, absolutely. I'm giving this a buy it because I know it's superheroes, so that's a bit of a cheat, but I read that Groot issue. I read the uh, Fin Fang Foom issue, which will be my next book. Spoilers. And I read this and I was like, I only one of these books was any fun. No, I don't disagree. This was a lot of fun. And they were trading on a lot of 1960s, like B-movie sci-fi tropes with alien yeah. that comes to Earth. And I thought it's kind of clever that the starfish hits the water and it's like, oh, it's already starfish here. Kick ass. You know, like, You're you right. guys are my guys. Let's do this, you know. Um, it was not well written, but you're right. Yeah. At the time, I feel like Marvel was focusing more on writing a product and DC was focusing more on drawing a product. Like this was definitely better art than the other 1960s Marvel stuff I've looked at. I'm glad I read it. You would never know this was the first appearance of the Justice League. Cause like you said, they just yeah. sprung from the page fully formed. Fully formed, yeah. <laughs> but it was fun. Um, all their powers were surprisingly dialed up. Like they could do anything they wanted. Oh, well, sure. Like, yeah. Green Lantern's making ramps that, that, like for a plane to land. Uh, Martian Manhunter literally sucks up a storm and spits it out. <laughs> like with my super breath, I can draw these storm clouds over here. Like he also, he also uses his super, super breath, bro. <laughs> he also uses his super breath to bring down a an asteroid storm from outer space. Yeah. Oh, uh, that Superman had just spent the entire issue smashing up, which leads me to something I forgot to write in my review. They actually explain why of all of DC's uh marquee characters at the time, where are Superman and Batman? Well, they're busy. Yeah. They were doing They're stuff. just too busy, guys. They had stuff going on. Totally and not that. only are they not only are they too busy, but they are definitely considered a part of the Justice League because there's two empty chairs at the table. Yep. So, uh, but yeah, there you go. But yeah. <laughs> no, I'm giving it a bite as well. It's an important book. It's a classic book. You can see DC working here, trying to teach kids, trying to force lessons into their books, yeah. which well, kind of hilarious. Know, it's like, hey. If we make them educational, maybe the parents will buy them. Yeah, I suppose. But I can, like, see kids rolling their eyes at this and being like, man, Spider-Man doesn't do that shit. I'm just going to read that. <laughs> you know? yeah, but you know what? I Like, I had that Metal Man comic in a, in a digest reprint as a kid, and I read that page with the science facts about the different metals, and I was like, oh, shit. I didn't know that Mercury could do that. That's awesome. There you go. <laughs> Next up for me is Devil Dinosaur, number one from Marvel, 1978. This was written and drawn by Jack Kirby. We can all agree that Jack Kirby is a legendary comic creator, but here he proves he either has a blatant disregard for paleontology or the age of dinosaurs was just too boring for Jack Kirby and it needed a fuzzy cave kid to narrate things named Moon Boy. The first human who, Kirby notes, is not actually speaking English, but translated cave kid. Here, Kirby gives us the origin of Devil Dino and Moon Boy, a group of evil cave people called the Killer Folk were murdering dinosaurs and turning on each other out of greed. But one young dino stood up to them, only to be pushed in the flames of a volcano. But for reasons unexplained and unknown, this little T-Rex survived 
and turns bright red. Moon Boy had witnessed the whole thing, and he overcomes his fear of dinosaurs to help nurse Devil Dinosaur back to health. From then on, they were brothers, defending the jungle and keeping the killer folk and occasional shithead dinosaurs in check. This is peak Kirby drawing the weirdest dinosaurs and cave people death matches ever put to paper, and it's awesome. The script is ridiculous and excellent and actually tells a story of two outsiders that overcome their biases and find love. This is Batman and Robin at the dawn of human history, and it's amazing. And they find love they in do. each other's arms. Everything I've just discussed sounds ridiculous, and it is, but Kirby manages to make the story feel important and even teaches the reader a lesson about the dangers of stereotypes. I mean, Moon Boy was terrified of dinosaurs for reasons that are obvious. Dinosaurs eat them, but he helps this one and the dinosaur even takes itself and it's like, well, you know what? Maybe they're not all food. Maybe some of them can be companions and kind of helpful. And the two of them get together and the dinosaurs are like, what are you doing hanging out with that food? And the people are like, what are you doing hanging out with that dinosaur? <laughs> I'm giving this a massive buy it. It was it's like too cheesy to deny. It's so good. Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, it, look, uh, Jack Kirby is probably the greatest comic book artist of all time. There's not a probably there. There's greatest not a, comic book creator of all it's time. It's not close. It's, it's I get not it. a probably. No, I know. I'm just, I'm just putting the probably in there for the haters. Uh, but. We're going to be like Joseph Michael Linsner. He's the greatest of all time. <laughs> James O'Barr changed my <laughs> life. If you look back at this comic and then compare it to the uh, Tales to Astonish issue we reviewed and the uh, Strange Tales issue, issue, which I'm going to talk about next, which came out like really close together, there is a level of care that Jack Kirby pours into Devil Dinosaur that is not present in those other two issues. Oh, yeah. And I think that has everything to do with Marvel just working him like a horse, like a pack mule. Like they just they just kept whipping Jack definitely, Kirby definitely. until he decided to stop producing. And it's not that those early comics aren't important. It's not even that they aren't more important, technically speaking, than Devil Dinosaur. But Devil Dinosaur number one is so much better than those two comics. I can't believe they're drawn by the same guy. Right. And it's got soul. That's just it. It's got, got soul. soul. Yes, it's got soul. And yes. these other comics, obviously, it was just a half-thrown-together idea where they were like, all right, fuck it. Put it out. We'll see if the kids like it. And if we do, we'll do it better next time. <laughs> you know? That's yeah. it. I mean, and, it's, and he's also got, you know... 17, 18 years removed from those uh, earlier uh, DC, or uh, pardon me, those earlier Marvel issues. So he's got that much more experience under his belt. Right. He's also gotten a taste of doing his own thing at DC with the New Gods in the early 70s. So this is Jack Kirby at like the height of his Kirby-esque creative prowess. Yeah. And uh, it 100% shows. This is a huge buy it. It's so much fun. Uh, does it make any sense from a scientific standpoint? No. No. When you throw a dinosaur <laughs> into a fire, the dinosaur dies. Yeah. It does not turn red. Also, 
cavemen and dinosaurs cavemen and did dinosaurs not, did not live together. Okay, right. I cannot stress it's true. this. <laughs> uh, but you know what? In the Marvel universe, they did, baby. Absolutely, it's a buy it. Next up for me, I have threatened it long enough. It is Strange Tales, number eighty-nine from Marvel. The year was nineteen sixty-one. Fin Fang Foom is deliberately awakened from his ancient slumber by a teenager named Chen Luchao, whose homeland is under threat from the communist Chinese. Luchao not only knows the ridiculously accessible location of Finn's tomb, but he also happens to possess two magic herbs, one that awakens the alien dragon and one that puts him back to sleep. Well, but that's they, right. Okay. It's that easy. Here's the thing. Like his tomb can be accessible because everybody's scared of it. They're just not going to go there because it's dangerous. It's like in the middle of town. Yeah. <laughs> and they also like, yeah, they have like a, a throwaway line where it's like, well, the old ways we did the, you know, like we trust Chinese herbs and stuff like that. But the communists, they won't have the old ways. They're, they want to, yeah, you know, true. so there's, you know, that lesson. Is being yes, there. sure. Yes. Of course, Liu Chao's plan is to lead Fin Fang Foom on a chase straight through the invading army's forces, thus saving his home and earning the respect of his family. Sure. The entire time, Fin Fang Foom was like, I'll get you yet, you tiny insect. And the guy is like, oh no, you'll never catch me, you giant idiot dragon, <laughs> as I hop on my horse and try to ride it through a river. Apparently, Marvel had exactly two employees in the early 60s. You guessed it. Yep. Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Here, the duo turn their talents toward communist China with just about the same level as, uh, of casual racism you'd expect. <laughs> the Chinese people depicted in this issue are literally colored yellow. And it's hard to just chalk that up to the coloring technology of the time, considering how beautiful and vibrant the colors were in the Brave and the Bold issue from just a year earlier. Well, the main character is kind of gray. Like, and I don't know if that's to suggest that, like, he's not evil or no, what. I don't know. But he's, I he's, mean, they're all pretty yellow. He's pretty um, gray. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that might just be a lighting issue because there are definitely scenes where he's standing in his family room with his dad and they are, they are yellow. Uh, now, I will give Stan credit here. Aside from some inscrutable Eastern mysticism, uh, the script is pretty respectful. The protagonist of the issue and its family are depicted as patriots fighting against the communist regime, and no one is speaking in stilted Claremontian regional dialogue. Right. I was worried about that. Like I thought there'd be I thought there'd be nothing but like R's instead of L's yeah, for like the full entire on issue. Breakfast at Tiffany's, like racism. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, at the end of a Christmas story, fa ra 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 ra. No, none of that is in here. Coloring aside, uh, Kirby also doesn't fall back on racist caricatures, which is something that was far too common in comics not too many years earlier. Now, is it like the strongest depiction of Asian people? No, but they're also he doesn't he also doesn't draw them with like hunchbacks and huge teeth. You know, like if you look at comics in the 40s and 50s that featured Asians. Oh boy! Well, that well that, that was also the Japanese, and we were fighting a war against them, so it's they true. made them look uh, like monsters. You know, it's I'm not yeah, saying it's okay, it's still, but like no, yeah. this, I would argue, it went beyond this that. Was though very respectful here, it, like as yes. far as like 
like you said, I mean, the, the characters look like people. They're not speaking with ridiculous accents. There is some like old timey Chinese garb here and there, like guys wearing that. Yeah, right. And, and it's, you like know, it, and, you know, we, we, Amer- uh, America as a, a group of storytellers, I don't know if we ever really grew out of the, the, the habit of using Eastern mysticism as a trope. Certainly not in the early 60s. No, God no. Uh, like they are rebooting Kung Fu. It debuts tonight. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, huh, that well, is going to be something. Kung Fu was about a Buddhist, though. He wasn't like magic. He was just a Buddhist. Uh, uh, but they were white. David Carradine was, but he learned from a Buddhist master. Yes, but he is white. The guy, the guy <laughs> who taught Grasshopper was Chinese. <laughs> like, I understand, but time. you know what? Uh, so was the guy that trained Remo Williams, and that was super racist. Actually, the guy that trained Raymond Williams was a white person playing an Asian Yeah, man. I know. That was like full-on <laughs> Breakfast at Disney. That was problematic. And that was in the 80s. Yeah. I can't for the life of me figure out why Fin Fang Foom is green on the cover, but orange in the comic. Yeah. But he, he does look awesome. And Kirby gives us some great scenes of Finn displaying his awesome power. Like, and my favorite, swinging a huge chunk of the Great Wall of China around like a giant whip. Yep. Oh, it's awesome. That concrete, it holds up well, I guess, once you yeah, rip right. it out of the ground. <laughs> you know, it's not like it's made out of individual bricks or anything. <laughs> there are two other stories in the issue, including one drawn by the great Steve Ditko. Uh, Strange Tales 89, it's an interesting introduction to a classic Marvel villain. I just didn't have as much fun with it as, as I was expecting. I, I certainly wasn't. I guess I kind of knew that he was so closely tied to Chinese culture in the early days, but yeah. they very quickly were like, oh, no, he's an alien. <laughs> no, but he's an alien here, too. He's still supposed to be an alien. Like, no, no, no. They don't say anything about him being an alien. He's just an ancient dragon slumbering under the ground. Okay, well. Later yeah, on, no. the Mandarin like resurrects the Mandarin's him. rings come yeah. from a ship that comes from the home planet of Fing Fang. Yeah, and the Mandarin yeah. resurrects him later, and he ends up fighting the Hulk and stuff. And you know, yeah, there's a yeah. whole thing. I think, quite honestly, this was a super ballsy story to tell in the '60s, which was yeah. the height of anti-communist. You know, America, we're we're the we're the God-fearing nation, and the communists are the godless nightmare people. And it was very easy to just write China off because they were communist China. This is showing that, like, look, there were people there that, one, don't like it and are forced to do this and are fighting the communists. That was not a, like, popular view at the time. And I'm going to give them props for giving us an Asian hero, as stilted as some of it is. I think it still holds up pretty well, quite honestly. I none there was no part of this where I was like, "This is so problematic that I don't feel good reading." Oh yeah, yeah. no, like uh, it, it wasn't. It was it was completely less problematic than I was expecting. I yeah. just, I just didn't have as much fun with the story no, as I. I didn't love it. I'm giving I'm yeah. giving it a skim it, but I do. I will give them props for writing a story like this at a time where. I mean, who was buying these comics? It was all white kids in America. There's yeah. probably a few Asian kids that picked it up, but that's not the market that was buying comics at the time. Right. So yeah, right. mad props to these guys for trying to inject, you know, some culture into their comics. <laughs> yes. Now fly away, you horrible creature. And eat a ton of breast <laughs> Next up for me, and speaking of Asian characters... 
Giant Killer, number one from DC, 1999. This was written and drawn by Daniel Brereton. In 1999, a meteor hits Mount Diablo just outside San Francisco and wakes a volcano and the giant monsters that may have been genetically modified insects and animals affected by the alien DNA that infested the rock. Flash forward to 2001 and the leading bioengineer of GenCode has joined a government project to create a super soldier, Jack the Giant Killer. He's nine feet tall. He carries a katana forged from the fang of one of the giant monsters plaguing California. Dr. Azuma trains Jack by watching old Ultraman-inspired monster fighter shows and studying his monster guide. Azuma, an Asian-American, instills a samurai code in Jack to ensure his loyalty, but Jack is starting to ask questions about who he is and if the monsters are lurking behind a toxic cloud that surrounds a volcano. Well, who wrote the monster manual? Brereton is an amazing illustrator with an instantly recognizable painted style. He's been doing cover work for Valiant and IDW in recent years, but revisiting this book made me want to see more of his sequential work so badly. He has got this perfect tone and pacing for his Godzilla slash Ultraman S script that makes his first issue feel like a fantastic setup for the world and a solid origin story, too. I loved this series, and it is a damn shame that this currently isn't in print anywhere. I searched all over. You, can, you might be able to find it in back issues, and you should if you can. It is stunning to look at. It's a must-read, a must-buy-it for giant monster fans. I love this book. And Brereton, back in 1999, making a statement about Asian treatment in America, props to him, very forward-thinking, huge buy-it from me. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've always had this kind of feeling uh, when I look at Daniel Brereton's art. About 30% of the time I'd look at it, uh, his pinups or whatnot or covers, and I'd be like, man, his art is weird. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. He's got such an odd style. Fool killer. But, That's what messed you up, right? Oh, I don't know. He Probably did not. Uh, like, I don't killer. think I ever actually read Fool Killer. But. I looked at the, I, I revisited this and uh, it's so beautiful. Yeah. It, it's so beautifully painted and uh, yeah, it's great. It's, it's a ton of fun. It's a love letter to all of that stuff. Kaiju movies, Ultraman, the oh, whole yeah. deal, Samurais. And yeah, I had a blast reading this. I'd never read it before. Actually. I remember when it came out and I remember like flipping through it and I remember him bringing it back later on because uh, it's creator owned and he was able to resurrect it at other publishers. That's how I found it. I found like a, it was like a giant version of it that dark horse put out and it just blew me away. I mean, as an old school giant monster fan, I was just like, fuck yes. Give me more of this. Unfortunately, yeah. Daniel Brereton doesn't have a huge body of work. Not really his jam. <laughs> he gets paid to show up, eh, paint something, you know. leave, you know? But yeah, this is a buy it for me. I really enjoyed it. Next up for me, Superman, volume two, annual number one from DC, 1987. After an experiment conducted by Dr. Thomas Moyers, the scientist responsible for creating the villain Rampage goes out of control. A poor laboratory chimp grows to Kong-like proportions and becomes an allegory for animal experimentation, which was a huge hot button issue in the 80s. 
Lois Lane is in full-on 1980s power mom mode, and she's trying to shut Moyers down to no avail. But Titano, the chimp in question, recognizes her as the only human in his life to show him kindness. Superman has no choice but to try and stop the rampaging beast, of course, but he can't stop the corrupt scientists from showing humanity's ugly side. Like, this issue almost... Uh, it literally ends with a monologue from Lois Lane on par with the original King Kong where it's like, "Twas beauty that killed the beast. <laughs> I, like, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> John Burns script is very heavy handed. But yeah. I did like how he had Superman basically saying, fuck all these humans. Let's save Titan <laughs> on more than one occasion. I absolutely loved the art. I've always been a big fan of Ron Friends, who draws great classic superhero action. It looks even better with the inks by the criminally underrated Brett Breeding, who was a Superman mainstay throughout the 80s and 90s. Uh, Dude is best known for inking Dan Juergens for the majority of his run. Uh, He helped co-create Doomsday, the whole deal. The guy... Pieced out of comics in the year 2000, never looked back. He made his, he made his millions and he left. Yeah, right. You, you know, the inker always gets a <laughs> yeah, huge Yeah, he retired with huge that cut. huge inker cash. <laughs> uh, now, I was all set to give this a skim it. But when I revisited it, I was reminded that it has a certain charm to it that I did enjoy. Add in the great art and I am giving Superman annual number two a buy it. I know that Matt probably does not feel the same way. I don't feel the same way. (laughs) I I don't feel the same way. I'm not giving it a leave it. I'm not saying that. But as I was reading it, I I kept thinking to myself, what is John Byrne freaking out about here? Because it's certainly not King Kong. Animal cruelty, man. I'm glad that he loved King Kong. And then I remembered like, well, what else happened in 1987? There was this movie starring Matthew Broderick called Project Project X, X, which was a story about a government group that trained chimpanzees to fly a drone, basically, and drop an atom bomb at a very low elevation, knowing that, like, the radar wouldn't pick up the plane and you're not losing a human being. A chimpanzee just gets killed. No big deal, right? It's disgusting. It's horrifying. And if you watch the movie, you will cry your eyes out. I'm saying 100%. John Byrne watched that movie, <laughs> turned right around and said, I'm writing a goddamn Superman comic book about this <laughs> and combined it with King Kong. And here we have Titano. It was extremely heavy handed. <laughs> it's all I'm yeah, saying. I mean, look, uh, the, the, like uh, animal experimentation was a huge hot button issue. In the, but they like, touched uh, on it for exactly. spraying perfume into the bunny's eyes. They Matt, touched on know? it for exactly one annual <laughs> and then it was gone and we never look, talked about it again. John Burns said his piece. What do you want? <laughs> I guess. Given this a skim it, um, the art was good. The art was very good. It, it yeah. was just a little too cheese ball. And look, if you want to tell a story like this, you can tell that story. I just don't want to see you working. Do it gently. Yeah. Do it gently, guys. Come on. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's not gentle at all. There's no subtlety in this comic. And at if all. I ever meet John Byrne, I'm going to wrench his arm up behind his back and make him admit this was totally Project X related. So. <laughs> I love Project X. I haven't seen it in years. It's a it wonderful does not hold up. movie. Oh, no, it's a hold up. You'll cry your eyes out. Helen Hunt. A young Helen Hunt was the co-star. That's true. Be a good boy, okay? Be a good little chimp. Come here. 
man's closest relative. Nobody's gonna hurt you, I promise. My final Cosmic Longbox book is Giant Monster, number one from Boom! 2005, this was written by Steve Niles with art by Nat Jones. The year is 2013 and astronaut Don McGirt is the first to fly a solo mission to the new International Space Station. But when an alien life form invades his ship and then crawls into every hole in his body, the military panics and shoots down his shuttle. The wreckage falls to Earth. And then the alien creature that took over McGirt's body continues to grow, devouring a school of sharks. And then the Navy divers sent to retrieve the shuttle wreckage. McGirt seems to still be in the ever-growing scabbed-over creature. And NASA and the military have a theory that putting his ex-wife in front of him may make the monster listen. <laughs> Little do they know that she was cheating on him with a NASA co-worker. And they're going to have to look to a Nazi scientist that's been working for the U.S. since the end of World War two for help to stop the monster. Steve Niles had already had success with his hit 30 Days of Night series at IDW at this point and was riding pretty high, putting out his brand of gory horror books at just about any company that would print them. Niles has a following and he's talented, but he's got this sort of Rob Zombie quality to his writing where he reaches for <laughs> this mean spirited sort of punk rock gags that just aren't particularly funny. Like McGirt saying, like having an interview with NASA at one point and just says, blow me at the end for no reason. McGirt's monster flicking the head off his ex-wife because she cheated on him. The general leading troops against the giant monster inexplicably picks up two kids and drives them from San Francisco to Area 51, which is very hard to map on Google Maps, but I got close to there. It's an eight hour plus drive and they seem to make it pretty quick in this book. And they do this <laughs> just so the kids could ultimately foil the Nazi scientist's evil plan. Nat Jones is a horror artist that got his start working with J. Michael Linsner on Crypt of Dawn, and he would go on to work on Spawn, the Dark Ages, and later some 30 Days of Night spinoffs. In this book, his style is very sketchy and almost cartoonish to give the comic a 60s B-movie sci-fi feel, and he's very good in some panels, but it does get a little strange with his anatomy. It feels like the creators may have had bigger plans for this story, but the two-issue series here ends very abruptly tied up in almost cartoon fashion. This is not Niles' best work, but it is some promising stuff from Jones. I'm giving it a skim it, and I think after reading this, I kind of thought back on all the Steve Niles stuff that I've read, and I think 30 Days of Night is the only good thing he's ever done. Am <laughs> I wrong? Probably an exaggeration. I would but... like to discuss that. If I'm wrong, like let's talk about it cover to cover this week. Somebody hit me up and let me know. But like, I looked at the credits too, and I was just like, I don't remember anything other than th And I loved 30 days of night. Thought it was amazing. Yeah, it's great. But this, I don't know, just kind of, you know why oh. 30 days of night stands out so much. Ben Templesmith. Well, the storytelling was also really good. Mm, ben Templesmith. Man, I meant that, but that plot, you've got it's, this town, in Alaska, where it's dark for yeah, 30 I mean, days. It, look, it's a great idea, oh, but great. lots of... I, I, again, I'm not trying to downplay the quality of 30 Days of Night. I enjoy it very much. But 30 Days of Night is an exceptionally, hauntingly beautiful comic. Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. In a way that nothing else Steve Niles has, 
has done has ever looked since. I agree. And, and that's the thing with Steve Niles. I feel that, like I keep citing Rob Zombie, but I feel the same way about Rob Zombie. Where like on paper, I should love this guy. He makes, we'll call it metal. He makes metal and he makes horror films and he writes comics. You know, like why don't I like this? <laughs> like all this stuff that I love is here. You know, the gore and the monsters and everything, but there's just something missing. That's why I can only give it a skim it. Yeah. Uh, Steve Niles, 30 Days a Night is my favorite thing he's done. It's really great. It's so creative. Giant Monster is shocking, right? You know, it's edgy. It's, it oozes all over him and, it pu- and he, it, he puppet, it puppets him around and he looks like a, a meaty skeleton. Like it's okay. I get it. You know, it, it, it just didn't do it for me. I'm giving it a skim it as well. I actually really like the art. Um, no, I think the art that, is really good. I, I, I think the art is the best part. There, there was just a couple parts where it was just like, oh, that looks weird, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> and I, I did not realize uh, what you were saying about the lead character's name because I read it in my head as Maggart. And every time you said McGirt, I thought of Dirt McGirt. <laughs> well, that was just me being, it's, it probably is Maggart, but I, I was saying it like that. So. But yeah. No, but I mean, this is Steve Niles it. we're talking. So yeah, he was probably making that it, joke. Yeah, could be. Uh, but yeah, no, it's a skim it from me. There's uh, certainly better Steve Niles stuff out there. Yeah. My final review goes to New Avengers number nine from Marvel Comics. It came out in 2016. Joe, you might be asking. I thought that you guys tried not to review comics that came out after the show started during the Cosmic Long Box. And that is technically true, but we never reviewed this comic and I couldn't pass it up. I'm saying if we've never reviewed it, I'm saying that's fine. As you proved earlier in our earlier this week in our chat discussion, uh, you can't remember. <laughs> well, so, I, I did not remember reviewing Monstrous at all because I don't think. Yes, I, I, don't think I, I reviewed it. it. I reviewed yeah. it. Uh, there is an awful lot going on in New Avengers number nine. Uh, ostensibly, it is an Avengers standoff tie-in. Remember that? No. The uh, <laughs> No, I do not. <laughs> uh, Avengers standoff was the crossover where it was revealed that uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. Or, I, or the government, I don't know if it was S.H.I.E.L.D. specifically, but uh, they, they had an entire community filled with brainwashed supervillains because they had figured out a way to use the cosmic cube to basically turn them into normal human beings. Uh, it was also the event that uh, turned Steve Rogers from an old man back into Captain America cosmic cube. Fair enough. No, memory anyway, sorry. <laughs> I get, no, I get it. It's forgettable. Yeah. Uh, the U S government has declared war on aim, which at this point had been bought out by sunspot and turned into a force for good. Meanwhile, not Thunderbolt Ross commissions the creation of American Kaiju, a Godzilla with an American flag on its chest that growls USA <laughs> instead of screonking. Right. The new Avengers also have a giant Voltron robot. Rick Jones is a whistleblower and Songbird is a traitor reporting to shield. Got it all. It doesn't matter. Because the only thing worth caring about in Al Ewing's super-packed script is seeing American Kaiju bear down on AIM Island and exchange fisticuffs with Avengers 5. That's the name of the giant Voltron. That's not to say that Ewing's story is bad, but I had checked out 
of the million post Hickman Avengers spinoffs by this point. There was there was this. Uh, this eventually gave way to U, uh, U.S. Avengers. Yeah. There was Occupy Avengers, which is the worst title. So for me, I was all about that hot kaiju versus robot action. Marcus Toad draws the hell out of this, especially the monster stuff. And American Kaiju is so ridiculous, I can't help but love him. But ultimately, New Avengers number nine is an event tie-in in the middle of a series that already has a ton going on for it. Uh, and so I'm giving it a skim it. This book was stupid, Joe. And this book is written by like Al Ewing, a, car- a, a writer yep. that I love. Yeah. But and maybe it's not even his fault just because of everything that was going on at the time. But you're here for the hot kaiju action versus robot. There's exactly one panel where they fight. There is literally one oh, yeah, panel you get to see a lot of where the monster. robot punches the monster. I like Al Ewing playing with the whole Godzilla thing and making the giant, you know, American monster. It, that was cute and all. But this was just a shitty time for the Avengers. And I don't even think it was these creators fault. I think there was just too much going on. And I think they said, have fun, do whatever you want. Go crazy. Avengers is selling. Everybody loves the movies. The Avengers, they're hot. Just just put whatever's out there. And they needed to be reined in. The the art is not great. There are some, you know, I, I thought that the monster stuff was very good. And then it seemed like the human stuff was yeah, less. The art is like not. Marcus Toe obviously really knew what he wanted to draw. Well, and Marcus Toe is a very talented artist. And yeah, this yeah. is not his best work, which I leads agree. me to believe that this was a time where they were just printing as many adventures comics as fast as they could be written and drawn. So no, I, I'm giving this a leave it. There, there's just no reason to read it. Oh, there's, it's not that bad. There's no reason to revisit it. There's nothing here. There isn't even like the main characters are like white. Uh, what's her name? Uh, white, white tiger, white tiger. And the new sunspot, the new triathlon is in here. Sunspot is here in a costume. No, it's not triathlon. It's the new power man. Oh, pardon me. The new power man is here. Yeah, He's yeah. gone. Sunspot as part of a story that is completely gone and been wiped from it. Like there's nothing here. There's nothing here. Really? <laughs> I, I'm giving it a leave it. Like it was, I liked it. It was clever and there was some kind of funny stuff, I guess, but there was just nothing here. Where Rick Jones transforms his arm and has like a thing hand. No, no, no. He doesn't transform his arm. He's, uh, he's got a bunch of, um, they recovered a bunch of his property. And that was in the bag of his stuff. So it was kind of like, it was like the Hulk hands, you know, of the time of the time. Oh, okay. Cause it looks like maybe it's just the way he's drawn, but it looks like he's wearing it. <laughs> well, yeah, he is wearing it. No, but it's I mean a like, thing hand. like it's part of him or something. I don't no, know. no, no. He's wearing it like a glove. Yeah. There was just nothing here. And this was a bad time for the Avengers and they got everything back together afterwards and it got much better. Giving it a leave it. Eh, thought it was fun. As we slowly reincorporate into our proper timeline, it's time to pick which one of these comics to add to the collection. Joe Patrick, which one are you bagging and boarding? Oh, that's tough, man. Um, Like, I really liked Giant Killer. And I loved going back and rereading Devil Dinosaur. 
but I think my heart wants to give it to Brave and the Bold 28. That's fine. I'm just a DK, DC kid at heart, man. I think giant monster stories are very difficult in comics. One, because the star is a giant monster, and typically they don't speak English. They tried to do a little something here with Fing Fan Foom. Didn't work real well. I'm giving it... I mean, he spoke English. I, mean, I guess he was speaking Chinese, but... Well, but that's what I'm saying. It's like, I don't Mandarin. think that worked really well. <laughs> I am giving this to Giant Killer because it was fully formed. It was well thought out. It is beautifully illustrated. And the only thing it's guilty of is not giving us enough. I wish there was more of it. But goddamn, Raritan is such a talent, and I forgot how much I love that guy. And he just does it right. He follows all the beats. He pays attention to the homework. It's not just like, oh, we're going to stick uh, these superheroes should fight a giant monster in this one. I'm like, no, why don't we give him a giant robot suit too? All right, cool. Done. That's It's so easy to just do that shit. But to do it and do it well is very difficult. And I think Brereton is the only writer in this group of books that absolutely nailed it. I'm not saying Kirby didn't do a great job with what he did, but Kirby was working in prehistoric, you know, the prehistoric world with dinosaurs and whatnot and completely reimagined things. I almost struggled with doing Devil Dinosaur. because Yeah, it, I was just thinking about that. It's not so much a giant monster. It's a dinosaur. It's just a dinosaur. So right? it might not count. I don't know. I, I think there's an argument to throw it out. It's a wonderful book. But Too late, baby. Giant Killer, definitely. In my own personal collection. Forever. Never get It's time to head up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to divine the secrets of next week's comics. Matt, what is your must-read comic pick for next week? Next week, I am picking Jules Verne, Lighthouse, number one of five. From Image Comics, it is written by David Hine and Brian Haberlin, with art by Brian Haberlin. And I'm going to say Gerard. And Gerard Van Dyke. I'm going to say Jared. Actually, the Van Dyke part makes you think it is Gerard. And Gerard Van Dyke? I'm not sure. It's 52 pages for $4.99. Here's your solicit. At the edge of the galaxy, there is a giant supercomputer known as the Lighthouse. The only brain powerful enough to navigate ships through a sargasso of naturally occurring wormholes, potentially cutting months or even years off a spaceship's journey. Three humans, one alien, and a nanny bot have manned the remote station for years in relative peace until the arrival of Captain Congri and his band of cutthroat pirates threatens the future of civilization and reveals that each of the lighthouse crew have been hiding a shocking secret. Oh no! He who controls the lighthouse controls this part of the galaxy. <laughs> I mean, if you control any part of the galaxy, you're probably doing pretty well. From the team that brought you The Marked and Sonata comes this double-sized sci-fi thriller set on the high seas of space based on the work of master storyteller Jules Verne. The original story didn't take place in space. It took place in the ocean. So, I mean, it's Jules Verne, so it could have, yeah. but it didn't. Super fun stuff. Uh, the art preview looks in Tense. I am heavy yeah, into you know, I really like I have guy. I have just never really gotten into these Brian Haberlin top cow image sci-fi comics. Uh, like I know that you're a fan. I, I just have never gotten into Yeah, it. I like him. I really like him. And I think his art is kick ass. I mean, he's very talented. It is There's, all very highbrow. No 
it comes from a like very highbrow plot level. So I understand if like you can't wrap your head around it. I get it. Yeah, you know, it's not as intelligent as I am. I totally understand. You had to it. put the Justice League in my <laughs> giant monster comic for me to love it. So my pick for next week goes to Batman colon the Dark Knight number one because we ran out of subtitles. It's from DC Comics. Oh, you know what? And what's weird is that it was originally called something else. Like yeah. Batman Dark Detective or Batman. Something like, like it that. It was called something else. And they changed it to The Dark Knight. Right. Why? I don't know. That's weird. Uh, this is written by Tom Taylor with art by Andy Kubert. It's got a 26-page story. So it is 26-plus pages for $3.99. Oh, Dark Knight No More? Was that what it was called? Yeah, Dark Knight No More. No, it wasn't called no- Dark Knight No More. It was called some. Oh, it was called Batman. Uh, uh, something about Europe was in the title, I think. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Here's your solicit. An epic tale begins that will take Batman on a harrowing, action-packed European adventure and a new miniseries by superstar creators, those guys I mentioned, Tom Taylor and Andy Kubert. The Detective is what it was called. Yes, there you go. Yeah, Batman the Detective, and they changed it. Why? I, I wonder if they didn't want to confuse it with the Future State comic, Dark Detective? I don't know. I don't it's know. Weird. Lord knows nobody else has ever referred to Batman as a detective before. No, no. I, I would be like, what? <laughs> what? <Yeah. laughs> a horrific tragedy in the United Kingdom sends a very personal and deadly message to the Dark Knight, one that will draw Batman out of Gotham City to investigate. From the moment he lands in Europe, Batman will face a difficult investigation and unheard of adversaries and find the assistance of a partner once more, all in the hunt for the villain known as Equilibrium. New villains, new allies, a thrilling overseas adventure begins for the Dark Knight, starting, like I said, with an extra-sized 26-page debut story. It's just another Batman comic. I can hear you saying it now is a Tom Taylor Batman comic. And if there's one thing I have been wanting for a long time, it's for Tom Taylor to get a chance to write Batman. I am excited to see him get a crack at the Dark Knight. Uh, Andy Kubert, classic Batman artist. Can't really complain there. I'm looking forward to it. The THN trade for next week is The Vein, Volume 1 from Oni Press. It's written by Elliot Rahal with art by Emily Pearson. It's 144 pages for 1999, and here is your solicit. Chicago, 1941. A blood bank is held up in a robbery, but no cash is taken, only blood. It's the latest in a string of similar robberies, and as the United States prepares to enter WW2, FBI agent Felix Franklin is certain it's part of a wider plot to weaken the United States by depraving it of its blood supply. But the truth is much more sinister. The four robbers are vampires! Immortal! Physically powerful and after decades of owning their skills, practically untraceable. But time goes on and the vampires who call themselves the Vane stay the same in a world that is rapidly changing around them. As security measures evolve, stealing blood is harder every day. Oh, the Vane! There you go. And with every decade that passes, Agent Franklin gets closer to finding them, capturing them, and ending them! Super fun. It's like a time-spanning vampire caper about a group of thieves that are realizing it's getting harder and harder to steal blood. (laughs) It's clever. The vein. Like where where the blood goes. Like they are V-A-I-N 
because they look so good forever, but they mm. uh, want the blood that's in your V-E-I-N's. You can find our complete review list every Wednesday on our Twitter and Facebook if you want to read along with us. So hit up your local comic shop and pre-order all of these comics. And don't forget to pick up the THN. Take a look. It's in a book club read for this month. Uh, we did say we were reading Seven Secrets, but we swerved. And now we're doing Jupiter's Legacy Volume 1 from Image to get ready for Mark Millar's first Netflix show, which hits on May 7th. If that is not confusing, let me clear it up for you. Let me muddy it up for you. Jupiter's Legacy Volume 1 actually reprints the prequel series, Jupiter's Circle Number 1, Volume 1. So, you know. Well, it was renamed. and It's all about that branding. Yeah, it was renamed. It's what it is. And the trailer is out. Go watch it. We're going to talk about that shit on Cover to Cover. All right. That is it for THN 617 And next week we're back to reviewing new comics And I don't know if you've been paying attention to a little show Called Falcon and the Winter Soldier But Never heard of it The US agent seems to have stolen our hearts That actor, he's so goddamn cute I love him So, we're gonna have a comic pushers US agent edition Talking about the U.S. agent stories you should read, and you may be shocked to find out he's not quite as sympathetic in the comics. So <laughs> let's call them let's comment let's call them favorite John Walker <laughs> stories because he wasn't always the U.S. Fair agent. Fair enough, John Walker. Yeah, we'll do uh, Comic Pushers John Walker edition next week. Until such time, Joe Patrick, can you reset the question of the week we've been kicking around for? three weeks now please it's been like that's all me folks and i apologize it's all me it's not your fault things happen this week's question was submitted by us because we were all hopped up on the new alien comic from marvel we want to know what is your favorite fictional alien race uh please Send us your question of the week suggestions. We do try to do cover to cover as often as we can, theoretically, every week. If you want to wrap about this week's episode or any of the weekly nerd news we're following, hit us up on our live call-in show. I just mentioned it. It's THN Cover to Cover. Every Saturday at 11 Central Time, hosted on our Facebook page. You can call 402-819-4894 or join our Zoom chat live by clicking on the link in our Facebook live video feed if you can't be there live or you want to submit anything for a show segment please god submit show segment ideas we are <laughs> drowning shoot us an mp3 to two nerd at gmail.com or leave a message on the hotline you could be internet famous also if you can't uh, if you can't uh, answer the question of the week live leave a voicemail it's sure. all jesus totally Please, if you are leaving a voicemail for Cover to Cover, uh, try to keep it to two minutes or less. We've got a lot of people that want to share the air. And um, frankly, you're just not as important as the people that are there live. That's not true. You're special, too. If you're new to the show and you would rather spend an hour in Fing Fang Foom's purple pants than listen to any more, I assure you. It's only because you have not heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN or digital long box archive. It's at TwoHeadedNerd.com. But hosting that many episodes, it ain't cheap. We want to thank donors like our newest patron, Bradford Barker, who sounds like a proper British gentleman, right? 
like an it's Ivy a League Barker. British gentleman. Bradford. Bradford Barker. Pleasure to meet you. <laughs> I thought he was like the grandson of Bob Barker. Oh, okay. That's that's how I read it. Ah, Bradford Barker, come on down. Like that thing. Ha 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 ha. I've never heard the price is wrong, bitch, before. Ha ha. Very funny. Before we go, our weekly shout out goes to LeVar Burton. It was Star Trek First Contact Day this week, and we're going to just assume that the Star Trek Picard showrunners forgot to mention that Jordy LaForge is going to make an appearance in season two. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to build tension, you know, get us excited. I yeah, get you it. know, they don't want to show all yeah, the cards. Don't spoil that everything. But the rumor is Burton also wants to host Jeopardy. He wants to be the new permanent host of Jeopardy, and I can't think of anyone totally. better. 100% down. It's time for a Black Jeopardy host. And who else do you give it to? Come on. The Reading Rainbow guy. Come on. <laughs> Where do you, Mr. Burton? Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics. Or your retailer might just beat the shit out of your Android friend. This. Or your retailer might just beat the shit out of your Android best friend. This is a two-headed nerd. Signing off. Man, I was worried you were going to say he was going to have sex with my Android best friend. He's going to beat the shit out He's fully functional, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, your Android fan is fully functional. (laughs) Fully, fully functional. Fully functional.